0: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest live from Brooklyn, 10th Anniversary Show Edition. It's Wednesday, March 14, 2018. On today's show beloved children's classic, Wrinkle in Time, has been delivered onto the big screen by director Ava DuVernay. It stars Oprah Winfrey, Reese Witherspoon, Minda Kaling, and Storm Reid as Meg, the awkward and lovable and gifted young girl of science in search of a missing father. And then, no doubt from our conscious awareness all the way down to the Jungian sub-basement, we are sensitive to it, but how often do we really think about...
1: Color. <laughs> Steve said I made that gesture backstage, and Steve said I had to make it again on stage.
0: Morgan, i <laughs> killing it. We discuss uh, one of Julia's favorite topics, and finally a GabFest quiz in which Chris Melanthe, extra super extreme fop, joins us on stage and tries to stump the hosts about their very own show. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia.
1: Cheers to you, Steve. Hello.
0: Thank you. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. (laughs) Hey, Steven. (laughs) Hey, Dana. All right, I just wanted to try out some subtitles I had for today's show, and I'd like to get audience and and panelist responses. Um, uh, One was uh, Ten Motherfucking Years. One was uh, Old Ball and Chain.
1: (laughs) I don't
0: understand. <laughs> I'm trying to dry up your tears, Julia. Come All on. Right. Hell Keep is going. other people. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I found the room. <laughs> Let's do it and be legends. That <laughs> <laughs> one's oh, for you, Julia. And then I can't believe I fucking wrote these words. I love you guys edition. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> All right, should we do the show? Let's do the show. <laughs> An awkward but gifted child, beloved and supernaturally wise younger sibling, a missing father, a journey through all possible dimensions of the universe, an allegory of love, doubt, and recrimination... Wrinkle in Time is the 1962 universally beloved, as far as I can tell, children's classic by Madeleine L'Engle. It's now a movie. Social outcast Meg must catch a tesseract and surf it to the far edge of the universe. She's looking for her missing father, as I said already at least once. (laughs) A spooky physics physicist who disappeared four years early. Movies directed by Ava DuVernay. She of Selma and 13. She's the first woman of color to direct a 100 million plus tentpole film. It's written by amazing, right? Written by Jennifer Lee, screenwriter of Frozen, it stars Oprah, Reese, Mindy, and one of the Chrises, and Storm. The
1: pine stands tall. (laughs) Best Chris, best Chris.
0: (laughs) Oh dear God! And Storm Reed as Meg Meglit, who's read the book. All right. Why don't we listen to a clip?
2: Call me Mrs. Wetset. Mrs. Who? No, Mrs. What's It. Mrs. Who is... she's like a billion years older and way more knowledgeable. What can I do for you, Mrs. What's It?
3: I called her stealing sheets. Guys, she's harmless. You're six.
2: Come on. What do you know about harmless? Have I ever been wrong? Well, one of these
3: days you might be Charles Wallace.
2: Oh, I highly doubt that. He's one of the greatest minds in recent history. He's prodigious. But of course, we can't take any credit for our talents. It's how we use them that counts. All
0: right, Dana, I'll I'll start with you. Um, I I love this quote. Madeline Langle was asked what she thought of the made-for-TV version that came out a couple years before she died. She told the interview, I expected it to be bad, and it was. (laughs) I think there have been a lot of fluctu, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of fluctuating expectations around this movie. I mean, Ava DuVernay, a big budget, incredible cast. Those expectations have have uh, have uh, been taken down a few notches with the first wave of reviews. What did you think of it?
2: Yeah, yeah. This is a movie where the expectations were built so high, and the book has for so long stood out there as this kind of unfilmable monument that uh, it seems almost it's It's inevitable that they would be disappointed, but I was disappointed in this movie yeah um, i want I went in just expecting i don't even know what expecting for big budget filmmaking and kind of the intimate personal filmmaking that ave Dubernay has shown right. that she can do and that this book clearly calls for to to come together, and I think instead those two. Gears really ground against each other. One thing I will say in its favor is it, it doesn't feel like familiar studio product. That's for sure. It's very weird. It makes a lot of really strange choices that we can get to in relation to the book and also in relation to just it, how it t- unfolds this very complex idea-based story for the viewer. So it's original. It's certainly not her phoning it in and making some kind of you know Disney. Um, piece of sort of expectable ordinary treacle but Mm -hmm. it's it in some parts is a whole different kind of treacle that is um equally cloying we Uh can get to that what about you julia yeah i
1: mean this is a very strange movie like i think okay so much of our response to culture is subject to expectations i find that self that particularly true for my own Uh, watching experiences. So first, oh my gosh, so amazing. What a great uh, piece of IP for Ava to direct. Uh, This is going to be great. And then the early word is kind of like, this movie maybe didn't come out great. And everyone's kind of tempering their expectations. And I think there was some concern that maybe that was because somehow the great vision and talent of Ava DuVernay just got eaten up by by the mega movie machine. And that is not the case. Like, this movie has an incredibly specific, weird vision uh it doesn't hit any of the beats you expected to hit it has a funny mixture of really technicolor fantasy you know once they go once they tesser through the tesseract they go to various different planets which have incredibly vibrant colors and strange creatures and reese witherspoon becomes a fluttering like cabbage beast and uh it 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 pairs these incredibly unreal images with this very um, kind of realistic stuff from the place they're tessering from in a way that just makes the whole thing feel kind of herky-jerky. And my big question in watching it... So, so however, it's definitely weird. I came into the theater thinking this is going to be bad because I'd read all the pre-chatter, and I was sort of pleasantly surprised by how many good performances there are in it and how many, just how unusual it is to see a movie where the protagonist is an awkward Mm -hmm. teenage girl and the stakes of the hundred million dollar movie are like a girl's self-esteem. And like, she's given like a dim witted, cute, Uh, Boy to like mope around after her and just cock his head at her like a little animatronic puppy and like none of that's particularly satisfying but it's just so uh, like I couldn't decide to what degree the unusualness of the movie had to do with it being a type of story I never get to see and how much of it just had to do with it being like not so well made
0: Mm -hmm. I mean the movie is definitely about it struck me as being about two things one is going to retrieve the father Uh, And I thought that that was set up quite well. Chris Pine's great. I knew which Chris he was, for the record. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Admired his performance. He's very good in the movie. But it's also about uh, the internal lives of kids, uh, which is drawn directly from the book. And so it's about what can be somewhat abstract concepts surrounding self-esteem, the kinds of cruelty uh, that you can inflict on yourself, the ability of other people's cruelty towards you to get inside your head and exacerbate what's ugliest about yourself— all of those things strike me as extremely hard to literalize on screen Uh, they are brought to life so beautifully in the book and in the style in which Lengel writes the book um I felt as though going and expecting a bad movie. I saw one that I enjoyed. I think if you go in thinking you're going to see a masterpiece or even a good movie or a above average movie, you're going to be disappointed. (laughs) You really will. Well,
2: what if you're what if you're in the age range of eight to twelve, which Duvernay has said is the age that she's making the movie for? I'm not sure about that. My kid is at the very top of that range. She just turned twelve. I think she would enjoy this, but find the last twenty minutes too heavy handed. I think I feel like the the message of self affirmation and self esteem. I mean, Oprah's in the movie, right? And Oprah plays (laughs) she plays sort of. In a way, she plays like the the top of the heap of this triangle of ladies. Well, it's more
1: like in the movie, God plays Oprah, like (laughs) (laughs) just the whole message
2: is filtered through Oprah. Right. And the kind of the the assumption of Oprah to this, you know, she when you first see her, she literally is bigger than a house. She like she's as tall as the house that the two kids live in. (laughs) Well, plenty of critics have speculated that, you know, part of playing with the size of that character who can like all three of them can manifest in any form, and she keeps on radically changing scale. That you know that it is in some way a, a comment or joke on you know Oprah's changing size, which has been very much in the public eye for 30 years. But anyway, so so Oprah is our god of self affirmation in our culture, right? I think you're probably writing about this in your book, right? About sort of what Oprah has been to our culture all these I'm years. I'm not,
0: but she is a god of self affirmation for me.
2: And uh, and that in the movie to me just becomes too heavy handed. The last. I don't know. The last act of the movie almost is just—it's such nonstop hokey self-affirmation that if I was having my ego built is up in that way, true? I would not trust the praiser.
0: The three weird glittery muses, their hands are too heavy on the movie. Right when they disappear, I think some light, there's some life to the film. You know, Meg's life as a. Victim of the social politics of middle school, I think is relatively successful, the pathos of the missing father. I thought where the movie really, really, really worked was um, when you see this, uh, it was the beach scene, the scenes where it's allowed to be eerie sci-fi, where her younger beloved younger brother is being seduced away from her, and that separation is excruciating. Those scenes struck me as... As uh, uh, Duvernay suddenly free to make the movie she wanted to make, which was very much about um, conformity. Uh, and the oddity of of uh, conformist behavior. That was, I thought, chill, like genuinely chilling moments in that part of the film.
2: But th- those themes, to me, seem a little dated in 2018, and they don't seem really at the forefront of DuVernay's mind. I mean, she really is very right. concerned with these kind of new-agey affirmations, which the Mindy Kaling character, who can only speak in quotes, which is also the case in the book, it's sort of she's evolved beyond human language, and so she has to express herself in in words that earthlings have already used, right? And uh, and Duvernay does some interesting things with that. For example, taking all the canonical kind of Western white guy quotes from the book, uh, in in which that character Mrs. Who is that who she is Mrs. Who? Yeah, Yeah. that one's Mrs. Who. Um, Is always quoting Dante and Shakespeare and Rousseau and Pascal, and she. So Ava Duvernay throws in some Outcast, right, Right. and some Lin Manuel Miranda, and uh, and I want to just admit
1: to this room of intimate friends. That I did not immediately grok that as a Hamilton quote and thought that the laugh was for the fact that it was something Miranda said on Sex and the City.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Just among us. If she really wanted to cast the net wide, she should have brought Cynthia Nixon in there, too. Anyway, so I appreciate that gesture of kind of diversifying the uh, the, the quote palette of Mrs. Who. Um, and in general, I like that this movie doesn't foreground the multicultural, multiracial family at its center. It doesn't, it doesn't make itself didactic about race. It makes itself didactic about lots of other things, most of them Everything sort of having to do with New Age self-esteem. Right. But, uh, but in that sense, I think it was, it's, it's very restrained, and it plays it quite beautifully. Can I,
1: can I make one note? So I, the word hokey that you used is also in my notes, except for I have it rendered here as hokerino, because it was so extremely hokey. Mm-hmm. But weirdly, the thing, the thing that I found strangely moving about it is that on their journey, on the children's journey with Oprah and Reese and Mindy and Miranda— uh, they end up at a middle place where they meet the happy medium and the happy medium is played in the film by Zach Galifianakis. And I actually felt like, I mean, one thing that's tricky with the film is just tonally, it's super varied. Like when you're place, with yeah. the sparkly goddesses, it's kind of heightened and electric and technicolor. And then the third act is like very surreal and kind of effective, but then it devolves into hocarinitude. Um, but there's <laughs> a little bit in the middle where they, they begin to kind of reckon with the question of Meg and her self-esteem, and does she sort of trust herself enough to, like, let herself pursue saving her father. Um, Zach Galifianakis comes in and plays basically, like, the fourth sparkly lady, except for he's kind of like a yoga dad. Um, and the register that he was thrumming at, like, I wanted to see a whole movie pitched at the level that that scene was. Because that was very, like, being in the middle of an Oprah episode where it was really about, like, can you be your best self? But, uh, but like, actually the question of whether you can be your best self is, a good, is for all that it's one Oprah talks about, there's a reason that resonates. Like, people think about that. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and there, that was a place where the tone, the, the offbeat tone felt like... De- Unstable, like destabilizing but effective. And I did, I, did, I mean, the, the thing I really came away from this thinking about was just like the amazing trap of IP that Hollywood is in, of feeling like you gotta make a movie based on some kind of intellectual property. Yeah. And the notion that, I mean, I, I get that this was a passion project for Ava DuVernay. She made it, her, her beloved stepfather died suddenly right before she made it. It's very personal to her. I'm not suggesting that somebody like foisted. Dana's tattered paperback onto Ava DuVernay and said, "Make this instead of something else." However, the notion that Hollywood be like, you know, what's more of a sure bet, making that weird book about physics and love and cre- cre- like the, the, that somehow people yeah. would think that was a sure bet than just giving Ava DuVernay a hundred million dollars to like make up a movie Whatever that we she would wanted. See.
0: Yeah, no. Um, so, uh, uh, can I ask
2: what you guys' relationship to the book was?
1: As
0: no, a child? because I'm now going to ask you, Dana. <laughs> Adorably, you brought your childhood copy of A Wrinkle in Time up on stage. So I'm curious I, to know what I your tell relationship the story is Of to this the book. copy? Yes. This,
2: I didn't even realize this, but I grabbed this off my shelf the other day thinking, oh, I'll reread this because I'm seeing the movie. And, uh, it was on my daughter's bookshelf and she because she read it pretty recently. And then I realized that it has my grandmother's address sticker on the inside. So presumably, she gave it to my mother to give to us. Anyway, four generations of women in my family have now read and or handled this book. So I love that about that, that copy. Um, This book was not a a precious, precious book to me as a kid. I read it. I liked it. I really loved the sequel, A Wind in the Door. There were then subsequently three more books, I think, which I didn't read as a kid. I feel like sequels were not the thing when we were kids that they are now, right? I mean, they certainly weren't marketed in the same way. I don't think I realized that there was a whole universe to explore. The time quintet, it's called. Um, But... But it's one of those books that whether or not it's a treasured book that you reread many times, it really sticks with you. I mean, it's a a real novel of ideas. And uh, I think any filmmaker would be really Mm hard-pressed to turn some of the high-concept things that happen in that book, like being reduced to two dimensions. What would it be like to be on a two-dimensional planet? What would it be like to explain light and color to creatures who have never seen? You know, it's full of all these ideas that, for a kid, really blow your mind. But but the the movie doesn't seem particularly interested in cognitive, you know, kind of... Psycho questions like that
0: But it has pluck All right, The movie's Wrinkle in Time It's at a Plex near you Uh, Check it out Come to facebook.com slash culturefest Tell tell us what you thought of it Be more curious to know What you thought about the book As a kid I mean What an amazing heroine I'd never read it before I found the book very moving All right, moving on (laughs) Dana is amazed. We've never talked about it. I'm amazed we're talking about it at all. Do colors whisper with an ancient wisdom? I actually stole that line from the New York Times Magazine article about Pantone. Pantone. Anyway, colors pervade our world no matter what, and we're very sensitive to them. But talk about color, and my eyes, which are wasabi green, by the way, (laughs) glaze over. I had to text my wife to ask her what my favorite color is. (laughs) <laughs> Apparently, it's cornforth white. <laughs> um, Julia, I have learned a lot of uh, a set of words that meant nothing to me until a few days ago in prepping for this segment mood boards, color trends, color psychology, Pantone color you... planner, color activity, acuity. I'm sorry, color acuity. You know um, all of
1: these words, Steve.
0: I've heard all the fucking (laughs) words before, but I don't know what they mean relative to color. Beyond the primary colors, I am a speechless person, so I'm going to allow you to take it away.
1: All right. So our wonderful uh, Slate Culture Fest production assistant, Daniel Schrader, put together a list of topics that we might discuss at this live show. And one of them was this recent New York Times Magazine article about Pantone and the importance of color forecasting and whatever that line was you just said about the, the whispers of color. Um, and we were like, huh, we've never talked about color. And one part of me was like, oh, my God, a pan- and how important is Pantone's story? Like, every general interest magazine in the world has done a, like, well, let's go to Pantone HQ. That story happens every two years and has every two years for the last ten years since Pantone became a thing. I edited the version of it that Slate did in 2012.
0: Do, do people know what Pantone is?
1: All right, wait, hold on. That was... Uh, make an audible hoot and holler if you do know what Pantone is.
2: <laughs> all
1: right. Make an audible sigh and moan if you don't know what Pantone is. Okay. All right. Let me stop as I, uh, I will interrupt my jaded <laughs> recounting of this anecdote <laughs> to inform those of you who don't know what Pantone is. Um, Pantone is uh, a system that was developed that basically is like a color register so many many colors in the spectrum many more than were defined before Uh, are all explicitly defined by this company, and they have swatches that everybody uses. So if you're like, oh, I want to design a sweater in New York, which is my sister's job, you can say it needs to be this color purple, and then you can say Pantone whatever the heck the number is and send it off to the factory that's making it or the people who are trying to market it or the people who are trying to design the website where they sell it, and everybody knows that it's Pantone whatever number it was, uh, and they can all be standardized. So it's like... It's, it's, like honest- yeah, it's, like
2: it, it's like the Greenwich Mean Time of color. Yeah, it's like
1: it's like it's like the official meter that they keep in the vault in Switzerland. But for color, uh, it's like an international standards thing. It's a very dorky, kind of boring thing that has somehow become like a huge uh, known quantity that causes maybe two thirds to seventy percent of this room to woo when its <laughs> name is mentioned. Um, because in general, we are somewhat entranced with in color. So anyway, I, we were thinking, huh, should we do color? We've never done it. Like, oh, another Pantone story. Are we really going to do that? And then I thought, well, you know, it's, I, I do love color so much, though. Like, I feel like I have such a rich relationship with it. And I took that color theory class that I really loved. And, you know, I have such a complicated relationship with color that like, when my kids ask me what my favorite color is, I don't even say a color. I say it's more about, like, I'm interested in how colors go together and how they are juxtaposed and, like, what an asshole I am that, that I can't just tell my kids, like, green or something. And then I was like, well, let me read this story and see what it has to say. And, like, well, maybe it's different from all the other ones. And Uh, It starts as they do in the like annual meeting where they pick the color of the year and the same guys there and the other people there and all the international color people are gathered to discuss their forecasts. Uh, And then the one of the person convening the meeting says to the U.S. rep, what is the zeitgeist going on in the United States about color, Shaw asked. Are they big colors? Are they strong colors, prime colors? And here is the answer from the U.S. rep. I think what's going on in the United States now is that it's all happening, the woman replied. It's almost reflective of the conflict going on around us where you're not having one definite color correction, but you're seeing examples in various areas. I think it's more about mixes. So even my own conviction that I have such an interesting idea about color because I'm really interested in juxtapositions is itself the color trend that's been identified. And I'm just like a sad creature of the color forecasters like we all are. Um, and so we decided, we'd, I decided I'd been owned sufficiently by the article that we should actually talk about the uh, college dorm room stoner trip that is thinking hard about color. Um, and I think before we get too far into this, we might briefly play a clip that has become iconic when you want to talk about color, which is a clip from a film from the past decade or so.
0: What you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns. And then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets i think we need a jacket here Mm. and then cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers and then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin however that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs and it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the
1: people in this room So that is The Devil Wears Prada and (laughs) it encapsulates the experience I just had of thinking my taste was my own and realizing it was not.
2: I mean that's one thread we could go down and if you want to we should about color as branding device, right? And as kind of a, a fashion choice that appears to be our own, but is actually being pushed on us by an industry. But when you're talking about color, you're talking about so much more than that. I loved the reading for trying to think about how to approach this topic, because of course, you're also talking about, for most people, I mean, if you are not colorblind anyway, it's a very primal part of your experience of the world, right? Every second of your life is... is, is making decisions based on the contrasting hues around you and what they might mean.
0: I guess so. I, I'm not colorblind, but I am color mute. I find I have nothing really to say about color. <laughs> well, <laughs> In keeping with our theme of ace audio that we're delivering to the live audience, but one thing I will say is two, two things, really. One is that... Um, is that when you give something a history, it becomes immediately interesting. And so apparently, like synthetic colors in the Victorian era, you know, the chemical industry was suddenly able to make much more complex uh, and a much more, a wider variety of hues. And then apparently another turning point was, weirdly enough, in 1998, when Apple came out with the G3 desktop, And they colored it in an interesting way. And plastic, industrial plastic had never taken on all of this complexity of color. And suddenly, following the lead of Apple, as a lot of American industrial design does, suddenly plastic objects were given depth, complexity, uh, sophistication of color in a way that they hadn't been before. So I'm perfectly willing to believe that it has an interesting history and that it's pervasive. But um, I'm still not sure why we're talking about it. However, I did (laughs) email a painter friend of mine And you want to get interested in this subject Talk to a painter about color Because here's this art form That's central to our Conception of ourselves as Cosmopolites As cosmopolitan Aesthetically sensitive people And I have no language for color but I love painting and all of a sudden someone was describing to me why I loved this thing that had been central to my self-conception as an esthete for most of my adult life and that is an amazing experience because they see everything a painter is doing to create the image by blending colors uh, uh, creating new colors and then juxtaposing colors uh, within the line and the heat and where your eye goes relative to them, that is a fucking fascinating thing.
1: Well, that's the transformative experience I had with color. So I would say the three most like perceptually transformative educational experiences I ever had was taking a geology class in college, taking a physics class in high school, and taking a color theory class at the new school when I was a pup here in New York. And the reason I took the color theory class is that a friend of mine who's a painter an old family friend, uh, Barbara Pollins. Hi, Barbara. Shout out to Barbara. Um, was We were at a wedding, and my sister was wearing a gray dress to the rehearsal dinner, and she was like, that's a great dress, Maggie. Great gray. So much red in it. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, that's a, the gray has tons of red in it. And I was like, it's gray. It's black and white. And she's like, Julia. <laughs> can't you see that that gray is full of red? And I was like, I cannot. I'm, I, what, like, I felt it was like a magic eye moment where she was clear or like one of those ones where the illusion pops into place. And I just realized that there's this whole aspect of perception that I had been completely untrained in. And it's kind of insane. I think actually how poorly we teach people about color and color perception, because once you understand that in fact, all grays can be either blue or red and they're completely different. And in fact, like as different as blue from green once you really start thinking about it and looking at it in a, in a more informed way. Um, and it just sparked my interest in the subject ever since. But the thing that I think is interesting when you think about the history of it is the color is this funny combination of like obviously this basic, like the you know Neanderthals were looking at a world that was full of the same plants and rocks and whatever as we are and perceived color in some way, probably fairly similar to our own, uh, and so, some of it's timeless. But this question of like actually wearing garments that had colors in them, or possessing objects that had colors in them—the sense of like what the historic world looks like—is so based on kind of manufacturing protocols and like what was able to be produced. Um, so that what the world looked like 200 years ago and what it looks like now are so different as to be almost incomprehensible. And something similar is happening now in that. The kind of technology of print production allows for one array of colors, and they, but the color of printing, which is light reflected off of pigment and material on the page, is very different than the color that you see on a screen, which is light uh, that's kind of transmitted at you. And so this thing that we think we know is so slippery and changeable, and it, like once you start thinking about it, you kind of can't stop.
0: So you think when someone really knows something like color, they can look at a, and I'm sure this is sort of true, but bear with me, is they can look at a chip or a swatch, and they can attach a certain number of adjectives. First of all, they can name it, probably, and they can give you a certain number of adjectives to go with it. It's sort of like wine snobbery, right? And it's, as a French friend of mine said once, yeah, it'd be bullshit, right? So you can sort of bullshit your way around a color, but... What really is the real form of knowledge is exactly that. It's this act of discrimination by which you can see differences. And once you begin to understand with color as with wine that it's totally, uh, 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 it's totally a function of difference and not intrinsic qualities, and then you begin to attach vocabulary to those differences that you're capable of discrimination, which is really what discrimination is, right? It's, so I had a color moment like a kind of hash brownie quality color moment earlier with the Munsell.
2: Yeah, if you start reading about color, you do start to sort of realize that There's no such thing as being an expert on color. There's just slowing down and noticing your own kind of perceptive experience of it. And so I I never knew before this. I was thinking um, about our favorite colors. I hope we go around and talk about colors we're drawn to and why. And uh, and I I don't have a favorite color. Oh, that's right. You're above (laughs) that. Julia's beyond all that. She's like Mrs. What's It or whatever. She's she's, she's too advanced. Um, But I was going to say in our roundtable that I like tertiary colors because... I tend to like colors that are kind of muddy. I mean, not unlike the burnt orange that I'm wearing, like something that isn't primary, but that has this kind of brown or gray mixed-in quality. But then I started researching what a tertiary color was exactly and realized that just like Wrinkle and Time, there's more layers beyond it. There's quaternary colors, which are a mixture of two tertiary colors. And then if you take two quaternary colors and mix them, you have quinary colors. <laughs> and, uh, and I think most of my favorite colors, which are things like buff... And like lavender that's really gray. It's
1: Sometimes you just
0: get in the back of the car and you let Dana drive.
1: <laughs> well, I do think I mean one of one of the challenges I think of this this repeating story of like Pantone does a color of the year and then everybody becomes aware of Pantone's brand which is the point of doing a color of the year the same as the dictionaries that do the word of the year and then everyone says oh it's green or it's blue or it's this or it's that like broadly as a culture we don't actually have the language to think about what makes one blue different from another blue Um, and that quality of muddiness and like whether colors have a lot of gray in them and kind of murk in them and, and like, band in them um, is one of the factors that's harder to describe that people, like, don't learn in primary school when they're learning Roy G. Biv, but is actually, like, a huge factor in what looks dated and what doesn't look dated. Like, if you look at those laptop colors, those iMac colors that came out in the late 90s or early aughts and that the kind of candy yellow and blue, there was, like, a very... Um, Unmuddy quality. Those were like kind of saturated clarion, bright qualities. They weren't like misted and shrouded in gray. If you think about millennial pink, which is probably the current, which is kind of actually sort of a band-aid pink, so maybe you think (laughs) band-aid pink is your color, Dana, but once again, we are all creatures of the culture. Like that's a much grayer color. And I feel like that's one of those, like, like I own multiple fan decks of paint chip colors even though I haven't painted anything in a long time just cuz it's fun to look at them but uh my painter friend was like oh you can't do Benjamin Moore you got to go for this other paint brand that has more gray in it like you that question of saturation is one that I feel like this moment is a moment of muddy colors And Mm -hmm. actually, that's more how you will be able to tell what's from 2018 when you look back on pictures in the future than like blue versus green or green versus red or red versus yellow. It's like there's all the colors now, but they're all they're kind of all the millennial pink version. Like Faith Smith, who organized this event tonight, shout to Faith, (laughs) has an amazing purse that's kind of a lavender, but it's a mud. It's basically millennial lavender. And like every color is that sort of dusty but a little bit murkier version of itself right Mm -hmm. now. And that's the thing that will change over time. But we don't really talk about that much or have the language to talk about
0: that. And because it's so primitive and phenomenological, you think it's not culturally influenced in some way, sort of like food, right? We have always a primitive relationship to food. We creaturely, as creatures, we need to consume it. But we look back not in the too distant past and discover what people found as totally uh, savory is disgusting to us, right? Combinations of flavors, essentially. Like, I guess that's the analogy between flavor and color. All right, before we exit this gripping segment, one, <laughs> Dana. I <laughs> can't
2: close it out until I just I shout out to our octopus segment from last week, yeah. because, or this week, I guess, is, is when it went up. Because... We haven't even taken it to the ultimate trippy wrinkle in time level, which is that, of course, as humans, we see a limited spectrum of color. And there's a creature on Earth right now, the mantis shrimp, who sees (laughs) twice as much color, exactly 50% more color than we all do. Um,
1: You're so right, Dana. We definitely can't close the segment until we talk about the
2: mantis shrimp. How could Steve not have known? I'm just saying, if Mantis Shrimp were making a podcast about color, they could teach us a thing or two.
0: They'll be talking about this at the Bell House for like 30 years. Like, like Jim Morrison in Miami, you know? Jesus. Are we done here? Dana? I think I've <laughs> You're going gonna to tesseract me one more time before?
2: I'm out of levels. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Would you say the Chardonnay is a little oaky? Or... All right. It's taupe. Uh, <laughs> All right. For our last segment, I'm going to call up to the stage a super extreme friend of the program, Fop. To beat all fops Chris Melanthe Host of the wonderful Hit Parade podcast Chris come to the stage
3: So um, I have some trivia And uh, my only qualification For this segment Is that I, I hosted trivia On this stage Two months ago Almost to the week For my live hit parade um, I don't know if anybody Was here that night That was a blast I gotta, uh, I gotta prep for this segment Okay Okay <laughs> Steve is boozing it up um, And all I'm really doing is is Triggering Ben Frisch Who has the audio clips That we're going to play We're going to play at least I want to say six of these audio clips And maybe eight We'll see how much time we have And then um, the object of the game Is quite simple You all need to try to identify What the topic was Throughout the <laughs> ten year history Of the Slate Culture Gab Fest uh, But Seriously, you just kind of have to say what the heck you guys were talking about at the time. That's it.
0: Okay. So, so this entails hearing
3: my own voice. Sadly, yes. I Steve. dare say Steve may even be the most frequent voice in these clips. Steve,
1: could... ha- haven't you famously avoided listening to our show low these 10 years?
3: Once I, it's in the books, he's done. I have yet to
0: hear one second of this show.
3: <laughs> this is historic, it's true. ladies and gentlemen.
0: Every time, every time we do some kind of a replay, for whatever reason, I take the headphones off, and I get under my blankie in Ghent, New York, and I pray for it to stop.
3: All right, well, without further ado, uh, Benjamin Frisch, if you are ready, uh, we can hear uh, clip number one. Fuck you.
0: Like me, it's uh, burnt, friable, and vaguely self-loathing. And, um, <laughs> so it's got this toasty undernote of unpleasantness to it, which I think gives it true character.
3: You know. It's not a potpourri. So, I, no, no calling out answers in the audience. Yeah, yeah,
1: don't shout it out. So I have an inkling about this, but also an illegal clue, which is backstage somebody, I think Andy Bauer said, I really hope that one of the clips is from the segment where you guys talked about McCafe and the entree of coffee to
0: McDonald's. What, wasn't, what are the additives friable? Yeah, I
1: don't know. McDonald's coffee isn't very good. <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> I don't that think
0: you can make a liquid friable.
2: Oh, oh, wait. Oh, oh, I know what it is. I think yeah. we're dealing with... Consensus?
0: One, three.
3: Granola. granola. <laughs> that, that is correct. Uh, the answer is the granola taste test in the Great Granola Showdown edition from February of 2012. <laughs> <laughs> Right, that's one for us. So with,
0: with the great Danny Pash. Yeah. He was so good, man. That was when I realized that guy's friggin' funny. Yeah. He was...
3: I just, I love the snark in that episode. I mean, you guys were, you were really, can can I curse? You were talking shit. It was great. <laughs> that was,
1: that was weirdly one of our most emotionally fraught segments. Really? You don't think so? I mean, I feel like you were kind of stung that your granola didn't win. (laughs) Well, and, and I mean, he came loaded for bear. He came
3: loaded for bear. He was like, really like snarky from the jump. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose you could like that sort of thing. Like It was like that. Jesse
1: Baker's granola had coconut in it and you said that that was a a slutty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: That's okay. Okay, coconut granola is bullshit granola. That's, You can look it up, but it all comes back. That I, I'm telling you not to get on my fucking hobby horse here. But, but that granola competition is sort sh- of sh- sh- shockingly, dismayingly like the first three Patriots Super Bowls. Ooh, this is getting real. <laughs> I mean, if you like winning competitions with an unlevel playing field, then
1: <laughs> what was unlevel? Do you like granola or not? Either it's an advantage or a disadvantage. Do you
0: stuff the ballot box or don't you? I mean, I don't know. You know, (laughs) desperate for a win, do you you
3: include the coconut? I don't know. Should we move on to number two? (laughs) (laughs) Not, not to cut off this exciting smack talk, but uh, here we go.
1: Oh my god, I, it never occurred to me. This is like really excavating my childhood. It never occurred to me that my childhood would make you guys freeze with horror. <laughs> <laughs> and confusion. <laughs> I'm now wondering, like, did I make up this?
0: <laughs> you can't find it on eBay. You can't find it on a Libris, not Amazon. Nowhere. <laughs> I got it.
2: That one's a gimme. That's yeah. a total gimme. Dana. I'm sure everyone in the audience knows it, too, Spike if you've it. listened to this show long enough. Spike it. What That's is it? the... The Mohonk Show, where Julia talked about her beloved childhood book, If You Need a House, Call Miss Mouse. What's the exact title? Need a House? Need a House, Call Miss Mouse.
3: <laughs> that is where? exactly correct. Oh, yeah. uh, from the Can Someone Show Me How to Laugh Deeply episode, September 2013.
0: Dana, walk us through the colors in that. <laughs> it's Actually,
1: coinery, very that, coinery. That illustration kind of matches Dana's outfit. A lot of umbers and ochres. Some yeah. black um, accents. Yes, this was, that was this amazing segment where I was describing the fact that my most transformative and favorite childhood book, obviously, was the picture book that starred a mouse architect who made amazing, different homes for all her animal friends. And Dan and Steve were just like, what book? <laughs> like, because they didn't believe that existed, right? And then they led me to believe that maybe I was wrong and it hadn't existed. <laughs> and I was crazy.
3: Is this like the Bernstein Bears or one of those other things that people have a, a, yes. a, a misremembering of and everybody collectively thinks it happened, but it didn't happen? Except it did. It was real. I later laid <laughs> hands on a copy. That's beautiful. Uh, all right, shall we move on to number
1: three? Sure. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, ah. As soon as he saw it <laughs> in his face, he started to wiggle his <laughs> hips. <laughs> In a kind of uh, goofy gyration, and then... he
0: did indeed have wood.
3: <laughs> that is exactly what you think it is, Chris, Chris. I think it's very brave of you to include that clip. I, I had nothing to do with it; it's Ben's doing. But sure, okay.
2: I have no clue on that. What? One. Do you? I ha- know I, by the way, any I anymore? have hints
3: for all of these. That's you update. guys haven't needed the hints really? thus far. I have. You don't hints. know what it is? No idea.
1: That's the chat roulette segment. (laughs) (laughs) I think. Where we test... So one of the funny things about this show is like most of my social media accounts exist, not because I was genuinely curious about that social media, but because I was forced to try it for a segment for our show. (laughs) And sometimes we try things like Twitter that we go on to use for years and years and possibly that will destroy our democracy. And some of them (laughs) are things that fall by the wayside, like chat roulette, which was... I think a thing where you, maybe it still exists, where you could just, you had like a webcam you were looking into that hooked you up with someone else's webcam and was on the system, and then it just swapped every like six seconds. So you got like six seconds of staring at a stranger. <laughs> did you press next or did it automatically? No, you, you had to, I you think had to you decide could, next. You could linger. Because right? if you, if you, if you, you um, could chat.
2: That was the idea. The whole right?
1: point was you could chat, right. So it was like speed dating for the internet, but with a webcam. And so we did it on air. I guess I don't know yet if I'm right.
3: Oh, by the way, you are right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if you're wondering when Chat Roulette had its peak, this was February of 2010, yeah, so say eight years ago. And from the aforementioned Meet the Crotchman edition.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we tried it live to tape. And then and then we met the Gratchman. <laughs> and that's what you heard.
0: Man, we used to have so much fun making the show. Listen to listen to us. We're squealing.
1: <laughs> These are the highlights, Steve. Yeah.
3: That that episode is one that I've linked to in one of my Why is this song number one posts because a little bit of trivia, Chat Roulette was the reason? Uh, Miley Cyrus's song Wrecking Ball Had one final week At number one It had a final week At number one Something like two months After it had originally Gone to number one Because of Chat Roulette Somebody on Chat Roulette Shot a version A fan video Of him Done up like Miley Cyrus You may remember That the Wrecking Ball video Is the one where There's a giant wrecking ball In the middle of the room And Miley Cyrus is naked Riding the oh wrecking my God. ball This is This man with a beard and like foofy hair Sat naked on top of the wrecking ball And so when the chat roulette camera Cut to him He was lip syncing wrecking ball And swinging on a wrecking ball In the middle of his room And he managed to capture people on the other end Going and like freaking out and laughing, and he compiled a full version, a full th- you know three to four minute version of wrecking Ball, which, because it used the original recording of wrecking Ball under the new YouTube rules of the billboard charts, <laughs> counted for the billboard charts and for one week in December of two thousand thirteen, I think wrecking ball by Miley Cyrus went back to number one because of chat roulette. <laughs> I mean, you
2: got not. You gotta, you that you gotta, you that gotta give is it up. There's, there's, there's Melanthi. And that man now works in the White House.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I do not
3: work at the White House. I have no intention of working.
0: There's there. Melamphe, Melampheer, and Melampheist. And, and you Pete caught Malampy? the magic. We got Melampheist. I
3: do what I can for you people. Um, should we move on to number four? <laughs> a grumpy
2: sort of ectomorph with a 1983 t shirt. <laughs> Uh, surrounded by speech bubbles. Do you want to take it away, Steve?
0: Is there anything redeeming about this? Julia, Dana, talk me down. I hate everything. What?
2: I know that one. Uh, Do you know it? Yeah, but you go. Okay, so I believe that that was the, the, draw, the end of the Draw Steve contest. So for months and months, we had this challenge out where listeners could draw the unvisionable <laughs> Steve Metcalf, and the winner of the contest was, wasn't it?
1: Molly Lawless. Molly Lawless,
2: the illustrator, who drew an incredible picture of this. He didn't really look like Steve, but this wonderful crank with speech bubbles coming out.
3: There he is, (laughs) folks. That's the biggest laugh of my fucking career. Fucking assholes. I particularly like the 1983 T-shirt.
2: August two thousand nine. To pitch some merch, I believe that you can still go on Zazzle and get this T-shirt from Molly Lawless. Awesome! (laughs) I have one.
3: (laughs) How do I not own this? This is great. (laughs) Jesus. So, Steve. All right, right, uh, let's do number five and he's playing with his little feet and is it basically as
2: good as television viewing gets I
0: I did not think Dana could get any more Dana but this is as this is as Dana as Dana has ever been this is the whole new frontier of Dana all you need is
2: nutmeg just grate some nutmeg on it (laughs) nutmeg Right, that had to be recent because it was post-nutmeg. Nutmeg was not that long ago. But why...
1: Sorry, I, what do you mean by post-nutmeg? <laughs> the time... The, I, I that I, when the I endorsed nutmeg rating nutmeg on all your space. Oh, right. Okay, sorry.
2: <laughs> Which I'm referencing there, so it can't be the nutmeg show.
1: Well, so the most <laughs> hilarious endorsement you've done since nutmeg <laughs> was the pocket squirrel.
3: <laughs> so maybe it was that?
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs>
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so pee-hide. this was Dana's endorsement of beauty is everywhere with Bob Ross and the pet squirrel Peapod <laughs> from the epistemological meltdown edition September 2016 oh my god so less than two years ago year and a half ago yeah um, are there any other endorsements that you guys find particularly memorable I'm not sure if we have any other questions about endorsements particular.
2: I don't know. Do you want to go around and maybe just say, endorsement or no, just say a memorable moment from the show for you? Horrible, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, sure. I,
3: I
0: got yeah? a couple.
2: Let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah,
3: let's
0: do that. We had Jody Rosen on to talk about pop music, and I was like, now I've, now I've lived. This is, <laughs> this is it.
3: Was this the one where you guys fought about Taylor Swift in particular? The one? Yeah. yeah <laughs> I, I hear some, some screams in the audience.
0: But then it, like, it turns out the amp goes up to 11 because Julia and I Julie and I went into couples therapy after one particular episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Only one? Yeah. I mean, I got so many emails from people I knew and didn't know saying, like, I'm really worried about you guys. Like the tone you're using around the house is very bad for the kids. <laughs> Wait, so
2: we have to know what was the what was the topic that
1: got you? You and so- I got
0: into a fight about the authorship question of well Ferrante we got really upset That's But that
1: true. wasn't the one that, that caused but people to worry about
3: our marriage that I thought the, it was Taylor That was Swift. whether or
0: not Taylor Swift was essentially was the, the author, author of, of her own, own creativity, creativity. Yes. And you
3: guys were fighting Which about it not, even so. before the album <laughs> yeah. Right, that was settled
0: yeah. I mean, it's What's like,
3: funny is that popular perception of Taylor Swift Has almost come around to the Metcalfian view of her always like, does. Pe- People are throwing serious shade <laughs> at her Give it people its are own throwing people. serious shit at her. Yeah,
1: you know it's interesting because we really have arrived at a moment where people are throwing every possible reasonable criticism at Taylor Swift. She doesn't get it. She's out to lunch. She's not in touch with the particular political moment. <clears throat> you know what criticism? No one is lobbing at her that she's not the author of her own music, despite the stature of her popularity.
3: She even wrote a hit for Rihanna. Like that's so, how yeah. Yeah, we, we yeah, talked about that two summer struts
1: ago. Wrote. Oh my god, don't even see him.
2: <laughs> All right, don't don't let him troll. No, no. no. <laughs> but the so best part there... of Steve's argument was how evidence-free it was,
0: <laughs> as ever. See, people That's think the that, that Steve oh, and man. I are the
1: big ash can bludge, bludgeoners on this show, but
2: the Dana rapier is the true, the true you weapon the yeah. in the arsenal. I guess, okay, I can quickly revisit a highlight and a low light. So, highlight, and I don't even quite know why, except that I just love well, like the color segment. I like when we talk about ideas. And, uh, and that it gets big and trippy And, uh, and so I love the abstract nouns edition When we talked about three different elements of language I can't remember what they were now It was like grammar usage and spelling Or
0: something like that oh,
2: It was some week Like Christmas week or something Where we didn't have a lot of new we, we couldn't all go and see a movie or something So we just talked about ideas That was a great edition And I remember it very fondly Although I don't remember what was said I think all.
1: it was voice, vocabulary and shrimp <laughs>
2: And then my low light has to be the time that we unboxed an iPad on air. and It didn't work. (laughs) Uh, And we were trying to have this this really cool tech segment, and we were just like looking at a black slab.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we we were like, it's the AMC gremlin of tech devices. This is the end of Apple.
2: We were rightly savaged for that poorly thought out segment. What about you, Julia? I don't know if I have a specific segment so much as just
1: like... Getting to the place where we figured out how to fight. Like, I remember starting doing the show and being so terrified of you both. And also, like, we were strangers, essentially. I mean, you'd been our critic for a while, and, you know, we'd met. We were there in the room with Matt Lieber, who's here somewhere. Um, But, like, I remember being sort of timorous and, like, you know, just decorous respectful and decorous and just kind of like mm, yes tut tut I, I have
0: no memory of <laughs> <laughs> any one of those three adjectives by when did when did the
3: meme of julia is a robot start cuz i've enjoyed that thread and Holy Dana's dears. a lush,
0: right? This incredibly tasteless running gag I had about Dana like passed out
3: in the green room. Yeah, you haven't you haven't hit that one lately, but you've definitely you hit the robot theme at least twice a year, well, I think. Well
1: like so, you know, we were we we're one of the at, at ten years in, I think it's fair to say we're one of the like OG chat show podcasts, and now there's many of them and many that I love to listen to. But part of the thing that you do is like figure out how to have this performed conversation that's still you, but it's like a version of you that's in conversation with these other versions of like Dana, the the wood sprite with a secret rapier, <laughs> and and Steve, like the the Luddite snob, and then I'm uh, the the philistine robot, and I don't know, like just the evolution of finding those voices. But I think. You know part of the fun of doing the show has been discovering each other and ourselves and ideas and relationship to each other and each other 's ideas and then part of it 's been f- discovering this audience and realizing that we 're having this conversation that 's a three way conversation but kind of a four way conversation with these people out there and Our first live show sort of before podcast live shows were a frequent thing we knew the political Gab fest had done some, and like it was possible, and people would come. And there weren't even metrics. Like we just were like publishing this thing. We would get a bunch of emails. We figured people wrote those sketches, so we knew somebody was listening to something. Uh, But I remember that first night of just being like, oh my god we're having this conversation with this whole virtual world of mm. people. Yeah. And that night, and we were so fucking nervous. We're still so nervous compared to those divas on the political gab fest who get soused beforehand. <laughs> we're always back in the room still being like, why did I tried, to, did Seattle, people, right? I tried to pour them wine and they here? were like, oh, you we know, don't drink here. before the show. It was, it was at Housing Works. And like that moment, I think, of being like, oh, wow, like we've made a thing and we're having this conversation with the whole world, like that, that was a highlight, I think.
2: I remember a note from Andy Bowers, who's out there somewhere at one point early in the podcast, which really touches on this. Of course, he's the person who actually decided our personalities would work together for some reason. You'd have to ask him. He kind of cast the show, and he very rarely kind of gave us feedback, especially any critical feedback. But I remember a note from him early on that was something like, could you guys make fun of each other a little bit more (laughs) and, uh, and laugh more? And he was right. You know, like once we loosened up and started teasing each other, the show got a lot better. Right.
3: Okay, so we're going to skip ahead to what was going to be number eight. It's okay. Six and seven were expendable. They were optional. But uh, here comes number eight.
0: (laughs) A new kind of Gab Fest. This is The Daily Podcast from Slate.com for Thursday, February 14th, 2008. I'm Andy Bowers. Here's your host, Stephen Metcalf. Hello, and welcome to Slate Magazine's first ever cultural Gab Fest. I'm Stephen Metcalf. I write the dilettante column for Slate, and I'm joined today by Julia Turner, Slate's culture editor. Hello. And Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic. Hi. Hey. So today we're going to talk about, we're going to start off by talking about a couple of movies that are nominated for Best Picture Juno and There Will Be Blood.
1: We all have the same memory of our first show, which is that it was on Earth Day. Of 2008. <laughs> and when we were thinking about tonight... And, we and were it like, was oh. about
0: how Sinbad was in that really cool movie about the genie?
1: <laughs> we were just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our first show, we talked about Juno. We talked about Earth Day. And we were so awkward. First show. And then we were going to do this live show. And we're trying to figure out whether the date worked. And we're like, gosh, March 7th. Like, that's almost our 10th anniversary, anniversary that's going to happen on Earth Day, six weeks in the future. But, you know, like, it's superstitious. Should we celebrate early? But apparently our first show was Valentine's Day and our 10th anniversary (laughs) has (laughs) passed.
0: Julia, is that what's known as Slady? No, that's just (laughs) being idiots. (laughs) Um, I'll leave that there. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse... Day
2: Special live show delivery Okay I am going to endorse something related to our color segment Which in a way I wish we'd made the whole show about color And just made it different aspects The shrimp part and the fashion part It's a book about color that I'm just in the midst of reading It's called The Secret Lives of Color it's by Cassia St. Clair. Does anybody know this book? Um, so she's a, a British journalist who's done this really interesting work of kind of cultural history where she... The book itself is color-coded, as you can see, looking through the pages. It's got all these little hues on the edge. And, uh, and she'll just take a color and spend a couple pages, maybe a thousand words or so, doing some kind of mini history that has to do with that color, whether it, it has to do with, you know, how the pigment was first mixed or how this color figured in some historical event. And uh, and they really range all through history and through every culture. And it's, I have no idea how you would do the research for something like this. It's, it's quite a thing. Um, but it's a really, really fun book to pick up and read in little bits. And my daughter got this for her birthday and is now reading it out loud to me. It's a nice part of having a 12-year-old they can start reading to you. And, uh, and we read about different colors. Um, so I chose a bit that sort of uh, seemed... Seemed related to our segment on color and to uh, to Meryl Streep's speech about um, about creating you know the, the, the colors for the next fashion season. This is a, this is from the section on taupe, which is one of those quinary muddy colors that I like. And, uh, and this is about the, uh, the British Color Council in 1932, sort of the Pantone of its day, decided to set out this kind of dictionary of, of colors. And, uh, and as you'll hear from this, this little segment I'm going to read, they went way into the weeds in trying to figure out how to name and identify these colors for the first time. So here's some, some stuff about taupe in 1932. They all developed a fine appreciation for the difficulty of the task. Colors were hard to pin down. They could change names over time or the shade associated with the name might morph alarmingly from one decade or country to the next. One color that vexed both sets of researchers was taupe. It is actually a French word meaning mole, like the animal. However, while the color of a mole was by broad consensus a deep gray on the cold side, taupe was all over the place. The only thing consistently agreed upon was that it was generally browner than a mole had a right to be. The BCC, the British Color Council's assumption, was that the confusion was due to ignorant English speakers not realizing that taupe and mole were different words for the same thing. So, skipping a bit, the researchers set out on an expedition around the zoological museums of the United States and France to look at foreign specimens from the genus Talpa to determine whether there was a logical reason for using both terms. Its color certainly varies, they concluded but what was generally understood by the term taupe represents a considerable departure from any color a mole might possess. The sample they included in their book, therefore, was, quote, a correct match for the average actual color of the French mole. <laughs> so this book is full of, of that level of, uh, of color analysis and history, if you want to get into it. The Wait, Secret Lives
1: of Color. So if I'm hearing that right, they changed, the, they changed the color to match the name?
2: I think they tried to average out the color of all Mole creatures to find sort of The ideal platonic mole <laughs> color <laughs> That they could then the name Ur-Mole. taupe After the French word for mole So I mean just digging out Enough history to, to figure out something Like that it's, that's, that's pretty cool um, Alright I'm done <laughs>
0: <laughs> Julia what do you have? Uh,
1: so a few months ago On this podcast I asked listeners to give me Like good kind of hard boiled Detective reads to read Before bed I was looking for a little pre-bedtime narrative uh, and not among those suggestions but in the same vein I have recently been reading The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler oh, yes <laughs> I had never read a word of Raymond Chandler oh my
0: fuck what a great book
1: what a great book <laughs> um What a great writer. Like, just on a sentence level, like, doing the noir thing and doing it so well, but with so much humor in it, like, so much bitter, sardonic humor. There's, like, an amazing moment where he gets driven home by a rich guy's chauffeur and he tries to tip him and the guy says no and then he offers him a book of T.S. Eliot's poems. (laughs) Then the driver already had them. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like... what? What an amazing grace note in, like, a hard-boiled L.A. detective novel. But among the things that are fascinating about it and kind of great about it is just, you know, like, the shtick of masculinity uh, of, of Marlowe, the detective character. And there is an amazing passage in this book about blondes, about the characters of blondes, and I'm going to read a slightly abridged version of it. And reading it, I was both, like, struck by what a great piece of writing it was, and how it did sort of seem true to something although maybe only true to some cinematic idea of blondes I should also stipulate here for those of you who haven't uh, because we haven't conducted the draw Julia test that although I am currently a brunette I was a blonde until I was 20 so I'm allowed (laughs) to have thoughts about blondes Um, and it's like not a piece of writing you'd necessarily want someone to make today because it's got all kinds of internalized misogynistic whatnot. but on the other hand it's kind of a great read (laughs) so I'm going to read it to you He's in, a, he's in a restaurant, and a woman has entered. I stared. She caught me staring. She lifted her glance half an inch, and I wasn't there anymore. But wherever I was, I was holding my breath. There are blondes and blondes, and it is almost a joke word nowadays. All blondes have their points, except perhaps the metallic ones, as to disposition as soft as sidewalk. There is the small, cute blonde who cheeps and twitters, and the big, statuesque blonde who straight arms you with an ice blue glare. There is the blonde who gives you the up from under look and smells lovely and shimmers and hangs on your arm and is always very, very tired when you take her home. There is the soft and willing and alcoholic blonde who doesn't care what she wears as long, it is as, as, long as it is mink or where she goes, as long it is as it is the starlight roof and there's plenty of dry champagne. There is the small, perky blonde who is a little pal and wants to pay her own way and is full of sunshine and common sense and knows judo from the ground up and can toss a truck driver over her shoulder without missing more than one sentence out of the editorial in the Sunday Review. There is the pale, pale blonde with anemia of some non-fatal but incurable type. She is very languid and very shadowy and she speaks softly out of nowhere and you can't lay a finger on her because in the first place you don't want to. And in the second place she is reading The Wasteland or Dante in the original or Kafka or Kierkegaard or studying Provençal. And lastly, there is the gorgeous showpiece who will outlast three kingpin racketeers and then marry a couple of millionaires at a million a head and end up with a pale rose villa at Cap an Alfa Romeo town car complete with pilot and co-pilot and a stable of shop-worn aristocrats, all of whom she will treat with the affectionate absent-mindedness of an elderly duke saying goodnight to his butler. <laughs> the dream across the way was none of these... Not even of that kind of world, she was unclassifiable, as remote and clear as mountain water, as elusive as its color.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. Julia Turner reading Raymond Chandler is like my chat roulette heaven. (laughs) You know that Chandler was a famous, famous uh, drunk? And um,
1: one gathers that
0: yeah. from
3: pros. And fa- You don't say
0: Faulkner was hired to write the screenplay To The Big Sleep and, and was handed the book By Howard Hawks, he read it, I think he admired it But he realized that there's, that there's A murder that happens very early on In the book, the butler dies I think is driven into a lake maybe And he's going through the book and as a screenwriter You've got to kind of chart the whole thing out Make it all make sense and put it into a you know, Very schematic two hour form He's like, wait a second Who killed the butler? It's never explain. So he tries to get Chandler on the phone. Chandler's on a three-day drunk. He's on a seventy-two-hour bender, and he finally comes out of it. And Faulkner gets him on the phone and says, "Ray, who kills the who kills the butler?" And he was like, "I don't know. I got to reread the book." <laughs> Chandler rereads the book and calls him back and says, "Yep, you're right. Never saw, never sewed that one up. No idea." No one did. So,
2: The movie has an unsolved murder in it, too, right? The movie has a famous plot hole. I can't remember if I think if it's probably the that's
0: the one. I mean, Faulkner went on his own two-week bender and was like, fuck it. <laughs> Here's your screenplay. Um, all right, so today I went for the first time, I'm embarrassed to say, to the Brooklyn Museum. Uh, and it was... Uh, now, what was that? Was that I'm... Was that I'm so happy for you And you had that experience Or was that
3: If you saw David Bowie is I'm very happy for you
0: But that wasn't You're pathetic for waiting this long To go to the Whatever We'll talk about it after the show <laughs> but, um, And the reason I went was I've been I don't know if you know this You probably don't I've been struggling with a book For the entire run of this show <laughs> And it's about the 1980s And I pitched the book in the 1880s And planned on finishing <laughs> it in 2080 so don't hold your breath but part of it is on the painter Jean-Michel Basquiat and about sometime in the last year or so I can't remember, very near time frame Basquiat, whose prices had been trending up he died when he was 27 in the late late 80s his prices had been trending up posthumously the whole time but they really started to spike in the last 5-10 years and he hit I think about 55 million two years ago and people were that was jarring, that was, that was a big big price for Basquiat so Untitled 1982 which I think is maybe his greatest painting just sold about six months ago I believe for $115 million bought by a Japanese billionaire making it the highest price ever fetched for a painter by an American by a painting by an American painter so he's exceeded Warhol who held the record for a while and someone else I can't remember um and I just went to go look at it and I don't think I'd ever seen it up close and I have to say the presentation is beautiful it's, it's a single painting in a single room uh, there's a little bit of text on the wall but on the opposite wall facing the hung painting uh, and, and the only other object of attention in the room is the little member membership card about the size of a business card that Basquiat was given by his mother in order to go look, I believe, a Guernica, the Picasso painting, which moved him greatly. Um, but otherwise, it is essentially a chapel for contemplating this painting. And the challenge with Basquiat has always been that he's, as a painter who broke the color barrier in many ways, as a supposed graffiti artist, though he didn't really consider himself that, but a kind of a tagger, as a young, beautiful black, utterly bewitching human being. The problem with his work has always been it's so overdetermined. so much is brought to it and loaded up on top of it. It crushed him while he was alive. It's come between us and the work since he died. And I have to say, I did that thing that you almost never get to do, which is I sat in the pew, and it really is set up almost like a pew, and I just looked at the painting. And that thing that is supposedly happens that the cultists of meditation say that that if you really get to that moment, you are amazed at what melts away. And it fucking melted away. And I was actually looking at that painting and you he was in a way an action painter and he's very untrained And the actual physical act, as with Pollock, of making the canvas was more important to him than any kind of long discipleship or apprenticeship or, you know, sort of rigorous formal training of which he had absolutely none. And so his touch upon the canvas, his choice of color, is amazing, is remarkable. But that thing that supposedly happens when a really touched I mean, they used to call it in the Renaissance, the sensus divinitas, like someone whose touch itself actually overcame the amount of rigorous formal training that an artist might have had, um, and puts something totally real to life in the experience of the artist on the canvas. And this skull that is... has... It, in, in, in hearing in it is the energy of the street and the street art that he made, within the confines of a traditional canvas and that skull is in fucking agony and the way he painted it and the colors that he used allows that that pain to come off the canvas and enter your meditative state and so I highly recommend looking at the painting online you have a couple days to go see it in Brooklyn unless you are listening to this at home in which case you're SOL but the curious thing is the man who bought it in this very cheerful and generous And I think sincere way Has said the purpose of spending This amount of money I mean he didn't say obscene But let's say it This obscene amount of money on this single work Was not for me to hoard it And he's actually taking it He wanted it to start in Brooklyn Which I think was the exact right gesture But he's taking it around the world Because he wants people to go and see it So if you're, if you're listening Go online, Untitled 1982 Find it I sincerely believe it'll probably be hung with the same reverence, and sense of solitude and 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 intense
3: concentration that it was
0: in Brooklyn. is very worth going to see.
3: Chris, great endorsement. Um, I have one quick endorsement, which I think I can do in under a minute, and then uh, and then my sort of bonus endorsement. My quick endorsement is that in my music nerd world, we've lost so many, you know, famous. You know, Artists, Bowie, Prince, etc. In the last couple of years um, But this week we lost somebody Who's kind of an inside baseball person for music people Who is Russ Solomon Russ Solomon was the founder of Tower Records Tower Records Kind of the first and last great emporium Of music I suppose Amoeba on the west coast Is now the last because it's still standing uh, It closed in 2006 Russ Solomon was like one of a kind In the world of music retail And the, here's my endorsement I had never actually sat and watched this. There's a documentary directed by Colin Hanks, son of Tom, called All Things Must Pass, um, named after the George Harrison album and the title track from that album. Uh, about it's it's a classic rise and fall of the Roman Empire of Tower Records, how it was, you know, riding high in the 80s and 90s as a series of things happened to make music retail king of the castle from mtv to michael jackson to the compact disc which caused so many people to rebuy their whole music collections and then of course you you can write the, the script napster happens uh digital music happens the ipod happens and it, it all collapses remarkably quickly and they they overleveraged and bought, borrowed too much money but uh it's a surprisingly moving little documentary not fancy not oscar worthy but I, I was very entertained watching it, so I recommend all things must pass. And then uh the other thing I have to recommend is I think I've brought um a pastry or a dessert to commemorate this occasion. Um and I think June Thomas is going to help me bring it out. And here she is. Are you it? Oh Oh my god, look at that. <laughs> oh my Thank gosh, you, June. is it vegan? So are uh, you vegan? The, and there are also cupcakes for everybody in the audience tonight. And uh, the cake reads, "Happy parentheses almost." Tenth anniversary." Yeah. Turns out it's not almost. It's actually late.): <laughs> <laughs> um, it's
1: Thank you, June. You're thank you, Chris.
0: All right, before we uh, get toothy here, let me just say you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. Ten years in, I still have not got this memorized. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. We have a Twitter feed. It's at slatecultfest. A producer, his name is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. The chief content officer of Slate Podcast is Steve Liktai. June Thomas is the boss of me, and I love it. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner and Chris Malanthi, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. Holy shit, 10 fucking years.